Case file number 6.04. Window security analysis without a net. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. Y you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one, the other one, y Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emir. Yeah. I know you've done a lot of stuff with, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of this authentication stuff you've done, like tying 80 to Windows authentication and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But have you done a lot actually trying to deal with Windows authentication logs, figuring them out, doing some forensics? trying to baseline or hammer down or troubleshoot that kind of thing i have like i know we've talked about in the past i use Graylog as one of my like logging solutions on one of my missions and i so i have installed a thing called nx log on windows mm -hmm. which will grab all the logs for you send them out and i've converted them into uh gelf uh, format mm -hmm. yeah. um just to make them easier to read because natively they're horrible yes we'll talk about that so Windows logs, I think everybody the first time they have to deal with Windows logs, event logs, is shocked at how difficult it is to do anything with Windows logs. Oh, yeah. Especially, yeah, coming from Linux, you're like, wait, what is this? I investigated Windows log stuff after coming from Banyan. That's how far I go back. And it was just like, what? <laughs> yeah. How can you figure about anything? And Banyan it was Unix based, but it's. It was based on commercial Unix. The world of Linux is a slightly altered reality from the old school commercial Unix world that right, right. Banyan started. So it's not exactly the same. So the title of this section was The Bass Line, where the fish get in a row. Um, <laughs> so when you're monitoring things, and this, and this episode is about how do you monitor Windows event logs for security events? Mm-hmm the basics of it this is actually a very deep topic and i only got to like half or two-thirds of the things that i had even laid out for this episode um right, right. and i was just like oh i could get to the no <laughs> <laughs> but on just about any data source before you could really monitor it in a reproducible way in a way that doesn't waste a ton of time for everybody is to baseline it mm -hmm. figure out what's generally happening if you're getting all of your information, if the fields are working out correct, but more important, but like usually that's table stakes, but you need to figure out, oh, am I getting a couple of events that are just drowning out everything else? And a lot right, of times right. those are the events 
well, if those are the events that are the most important events, you have a real problem on your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they generally purely volumetrically drown out what you're trying to do. And I've seen a million times, and I'm sure anybody who's dealt with Splunk with volumetric stuff has done like a search for a thing, seen the first page of, event, of events and everything, and the conclusion you come to from that first page of event, which pretty much all looks the same, is not what you were actually after. And mm. and you'll come to a, a bad conclusion. Right, right, yeah. So, so, so it's very important to hammer this out for many reasons. Just dealing with things as if it was an Excel spreadsheet is not enough. And so we can one way we can split data sources up into two broad categories are detection events, things that come from your IDS and your antivirus and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, which are saying, this is definitely bad. And then you have your audit type data sources, which are all of your firewall logs, all of your Windows event logs, all of your cloud access logs. Right. You're getting a ton of those events. And sometimes those events are forensically, even the successes are forensically useful. I've had to do insider threat type investigations in the past where it's like, when did they log in? Did they log in off hours? Were they on this day when we think a thing happened? Right, yeah. Stuff like that. So you need those logs forensically, even if they're not giving you alerting events, but you figure out how to get the right stuff off of your screen. And Windows logs have, has, have been an especially bad culprit on this, but sometimes logging gets really messy if nobody ever cleans up things that are just filling up your logs. Uh, in fact, uh, actually, as a as a non-Windows example, one thing that I see a lot in AWS, people will use off-the-shelf AWS scripts that will try to do things that they're not that the role isn't allowed to do, and they'll create a large number of failures that don't operationally affect the script, but it does fill up your logs. It does cause a oh my god spike in failed actions. Yeah, yeah, and I know this came up in an audit early on in my career. By default, Windows. The settings for like the log size and the the rollover and everything mm -hmm. is crazy small. So if you're not forwarding your logs off, uh, your logs again like ran over. Especially like if you're talking some other yeah. thing is just generating a ton of noise. Your logs get ran over like maybe every two days or so. Yeah, especially if you take some of the off the shelf advice for what to set your Windows audit policies to. Yes. Yeah. Because if you're logging file accesses, <laughs> that log fills up quick. <laughs> In fact, there's another issue that came up pretty recently with us is that we were trying to skinny down the on-disk audit log because that takes up a chunk of, however big that is, takes up a chunk of memory. And it was large enough where it was causing performance problems during boot up for, for some of our systems. Oh, really? As in like user apparent problems, not that it would never get through it, but it has a performance implication the size of those logs, not just a disk space implication. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about that mess is it compounds. It gets worse and worse the the more nobody ever tries to deal with the outliers that come up. Mm -hmm. And what first rule of engineering, you never get to Greenfield. Sometimes you end up on a network that has a giant mess of deprecated service accounts that nobody actually took out of configuration. Yes. Stuff like that, which are just huge noise sectors in your logs. Mm -hmm. And you never get to Greenfield. You're not going to get to redo Active Directory and clean everything up and start from clean. You're going to have to clean everything up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another thing, 
that I only like recently discovered is like, yeah, when you inherit like an active director or something, checking out your uh, group policy objects, because I happened to be troubleshooting something with like Sysfall on Windows. And when I opened up Sysfall, there were like, man, like maybe like 30, 40 directories. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't have that many group policies. What is this? And when I went to the group policy objects in the snap-in, it was all a bunch of objects people had been like testing with and creating, but never actually linked to my domain. And so I was like, all right, well, I got to sit here and like clean up all this crap now. Yeah. Most systems, this is not a Windows exclusive thing, don't do a great job of cleaning up after themselves. No. So the technique around that kind of baselining and tuning, and which go hand in hand, are you really want to hammer out the very highest frequency stuff first, because they will throw off everything else. And they're usually pretty easy to identify and either tune out or remediate. Right, right. Now, you have to be careful. You want to do spend more time on analysis uh, than just, oh, that's the highest thing. Because you'll tend to have them in cla- in kind of groups where it's one where you might have like five or ten events, but they're all the same thing. They're all roughly the same root cause. Uh, an extreme example of this is for us, because of an artifactive way of the way that SCCM was implemented for us, mm. um, there was a lot of authentication attempts by the SCCM client using essentially a null username. It used an account to try and log in, but it was like a, does this exist kind of thing? The status code was not an authentication failure, right? but it showed up as a failure in the Splunk authentication data model. Mm. So it was looking like all of these computers had these screaming events And once we identified that behavior, instead of hammering down each one of them, we said, okay, this is the status code. This is some specific items about what that event looks like. Don't put this in the, in Splunk's case, the authentication data model. You might also like ignore, ignore events like that at ingest, Mm -hmm. depending on what your solution was, because the way that Splunk works is that you grab all the data and then you create rules for it to normalize that data and escalate it into a data model that's just specific kinds of stuff. In our case, we're talking about authentication stuff. So you can use the same authentication rules, the same authentication techniques against all of the authentication type data sources. Mm -hmm. You've got your iOS logs or whatever, and the authentication events coming in on your iOS devices or your TACAC stuff goes in to the same model at the, the same data structure as your as your Windows logs or your Linux logs and stuff like that. And that can be helpful, especially when they use common usernames. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But not every system, I mean gray log, anything Elasticsearch isn't necessarily going to use that kind of, you know, summary index kind of mechanism. So at that point, you're much more likely to want to tune it out at ingest rather than tune it out during that escalation step of the game yeah yeah so the thing is root cause investigation is expensive putting in too many exception rules for your searches in your sim data lake whatever like that's a bunch of extra effort you really don't want to have your search strings with you know three lines of ignore this one ignore this one ignore this one ignore this one Mm -hmm. and maintaining that becomes untenable quickly if you can't keep it pretty constrained right yeah So 
the methodology is remediate first if you at all can. Sometimes, and this is more true on detection type things, you want to configure your log source. So you never see those events get forwarded if they're not useful to anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then de-escalating the alerts is another strategy. Maybe with your with with your Elasticsearch-based solution, you figure a way to exclude it from your searches easily, or if there's like a priority attached. Right, right. You can change that that priority to like informational, and that way your searches are based on a on like a criticality, and you get, still have the logs, but you're not putting them in the search that defines the rule of this is too many logins. Yeah, yeah. The, the toning down of logs is like kind of a never ending battle because you want to be logging, you know, like a good amount to catch something, but you also like, you know, I've had people just basically just turn on the floodgates uh, to the point where my log server was getting hammered. For an example, like gray log for the enterprise edition, you have five gigs, I think, per day mm -hmm. and you get enterprise for free. If you go over five gigs, then you have to actually pay a license. Yes. Well, as soon as I told some of the network engineers that they needed to start logging to Greylog, they opened everything, every connection, like, you know, everything the firewall was doing streamed to Greylog, which yep. blew up um, the log server to the point where actually I had to go to the system and block their logs, you know, for a bit and tell them like, hey, you guys need to like sit down and figure out what you need to be logging. And the same with some local systems where they were just logging you know, I could go onto Greylog, look at, you know, the logs per host. And I had a singular host that was generating 65% of my logs mm -hmm. uh, per day. And I was like, hey, what what is this? Like, what are, what are these logs being generated from? Is this something that you actually want to monitor and, like, pay attention to? Or is this just noise that you're sending me? Yeah, and it, you're right. It's a never-ending battle. We did talk a little bit about this uh, in one of the logging episodes. I think we've done two prior to this one. Mm, yeah, I think so, yeah. Where we talk about the uh, stratification of like, we have your syslog server and then you have your actual your actual data system, your Elasticsearch system. Yes. And then you have the ability there to say, okay, the firewall logs may be useful. They may be relevant at some point, but I can keep them as flat text and say, if they're below X level, just put it out to a file and forward everything else operational to the device. That, that is one of the big advantages of having that stratification if you can afford to do it. Like that's a bunch of separate systems. It's not always the right size solution for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But I just was thinking that's a really good example of a place where you'd want to do something like that. Yeah, definitely. So that gets me to my very last point, which was like, sometimes you have to ignore the ingest. You have to say, this log will never be useful to me, or it's unlikely to be useful to me versus how much effort it takes to, to, to get there. Man, have we been like you from exactly what you, the stuff that you were talking about, the requirements of keep your logs, what those do, are defined as makes a lot of people gun shy about what you're actually willing to fully ignore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The good, the bad, and the splunk. So I was trying to deal with authentication events on the network that I'm currently working on. And we use Splunk there. And the Splunk out-of-the-box threshold in enterprise security for excessive failed logins is six. And it's a static, hard-coded number in a, a place that you can't actually change. And uh, before we started doing any tuning, we were seeing something on the order of 
seven or eight times our user population of failed login events per day. Oh, really? It, it was a large part because of that SCCM thing. You'd get a bunch of non-user accounts that were coming in as uh, as failed authentication events all the time. And we had plenty of other stuff going on, but it was just, but it made it pretty nuts pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so the technique that I tried to apply and I succeeded in doing this was saying, Hey, I really just want outliers, but I want what is an outlier to adjust as my data does. As I tune things out, I don't want to have to keep going back and changing the threshold and changing the threshold and changing the threshold. When you're setting a threshold, you're always eyeballing it. But we have the power of statistics and we have the power of Splunk's toolkit, the machine learning toolkit, which does some machine learning stuff, but there's a lot of statistics in there too. That kind of gave me a quick window into doing this. I know that you can do the standard deviation, the average standard deviation uh, statistical functions in Elasticsearch. And you would do the same thing, but the, the machine learning toolkit kind of sets it up already for you. I'm sure that there that somebody's made something similar for, for Elastic. It's just a matter of finding the, the right Kafka thing. So what I did was in Splunk, those special tables, the authentication data model, you can query it like a database table. The best way to do that from a Splunk performance perspective is to use tstats. So if you accelerate a data model, it will do a bunch of what is very similar to indexing that you would do on a on a uh, relational database table. Mm, okay. And what tstats does, it takes advantages of those indexes. But it has to use a separate function. This is actually one of the things that annoys me a little bit about Splunk. It makes you make those decisions rather than Splunk figuring it out on the back end. Mm, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I guess I have some understanding of why, but it's still, like, I think it's poor user interface design in some ways. But, right, yeah. So you make a specific query saying, hey, I want uh, from the authentication data model all of the fail of the failed authentication events per day over 30 days by user. Yeah. And that T stats for that is uh, I I'm gonna see if I can post some of the stuff that's gonna come up in this episode. I'll find a spot in the website or something like that for some of my notes so that people could replicate this at home. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you put that into the uh find outliers or detect outliers experiment in the machine learning toolkit and you'll get a couple of graphs in something where it's just like by user count you'll have to select hey count is what i want you to do your statistics on which has to be a numerical field like all the stuff that, we, that we've talked about mm -hmm. right, right well and i guess you know what i'm thinking about about my team uh because i've talked about a bunch of statistics and machine learning stuff with them it's like no you have to make for any of this to work, it's all got to be numbers. Mm -hmm. um, for most of the basic techniques, it's all it's all got to be numbers. In fact, for some kinds of machine learning stuff, it's got to be numbers between zero and one, or everything gets awful fast. <laughs> so you go and you select count, and it'll do a model. And the first thing will show you the number of outliers with the standard deviation that you have set. Usually, I think it starts out at one, but uh, statistically, if you were doing like real data statistics and science or whatever mm -hmm. you usually if you expect a normal distribution 
want your rule to be at two or even three standard deviations. Two standard deviations is like 86% of the entire population. Three standard deviations, everything below the third standard deviation above the mean is going to be like 97% or something like that of the entire population. Mm -hmm. So you're just getting the things that are way outside the normal uh, norm of a normal distribution. Right, right. Now, frankly, you're probably not going to have a normal distribution for your authentication stuff. It's probably going to be, best I can tell, my this is kind of the end of my knowledge of statistics, a non-normal distribution called a Poussin distribution. Hmm, okay. Or a Poussin distribution. It looks like an asymptotic curve where it's really high up near the axis and then it drops really quickly and then it kind of peters out mm, okay. on the yeah. other axis. And that's the way you see most authentication stuff where most people, the number of failures is very low. So they're going to be right up by that axis. The, the x-axis is going to be the number of failures and the y-axis is going to be the number of users. So what you get to see and like the third thing down is it's going to show you that bar graph of how in like standard deviation buckets sized basically based on your data how much of your population is somewhat distance from the mean mm, okay and uh, that scale is logarithmic so the bars that get to about halfway up the graph are way bigger than the ones that are less than halfway up the graph because logarithmic scaling it, they're going up by by powers of 10 so you could pretty easily say almost all of my population is in you know one standard deviation or less than one standard deviation we actually found that for a lot of the specific data sources that we were or that we were looking at it was less than one standard deviation was most of the population mm, okay so instead of setting it like three we were able to set it at one or less than one mm -hmm. uh, and still get a very manageable number of outliers for us to address right and we used that to figure out what our standard deviate what the threshold of what multiplier on the standard deviation we needed uh in order to get good outliers now once we do that if we start to remediate those and in fact when we did our first couple of remediations the standard deviations from the biggest guy went down by literally a factor of three the standard deviation did so really? like yeah so the outliers went down hugely from there mm -hmm. right? the, the the line the, the actual number of the of our baseline so we did the average plus three times the standard deviation, the average plus, you know, one times the standard deviation is the threshold that we were using instead of the hard six. You know, we fixed one or two things and all of a sudden that standard deviation goes down enormously because some of those outliers can affect your average by an enormous amount if they're very far out there. So that's how we're getting the things that we want to address to come up to the top. And part of using a fully statistical methodology for this is, well, we get pushback from our AD team when we want them to look into things. Hmm. They're like, is this really important? It's like, well, we use this methodology. This is a massive outlier. We could tell based on the past 30 days of traffic, this is definitely a massive outlier. It's recurring. Let's go fix this. It's always a thing. So when you come to them, rather than saying this looks hinky, but this looks bad by the math, you're going to get more traction, or at least you can get some more management support if they push back hard enough where you need your boss to come in. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So another thing that I thought was really, that I ended up thinking was really important is the behavior. Yeah, in fact, you you came in on like every Windows login event is a bunch of different 
creates a bunch of different events. A single login is like 15 events or something like that, like it's something asinine. Right. So depending on the data source, your averages are going to be very, can potentially be very different. Mm. So I actually, and this is against the principle of the whole idea of putting everything into one data model, is I've actually broke every data source out into its own rule and its own baseline. Okay. And each of those have has a little bit of filtering going on. And so the, each of those are different alerts. Mm-hmm. So one thing I actually did was separate the Kerberos type events from the regular SMB Windows Active Directory login failure events. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because if I left the Kerberos ones in, I would have never seen the Active Directory ones. They would the volume is such that I would have never seen them. Yeah, it took me and another engineer guy like two days to track down. So the the thing that I was working on was mm-hmm. name mapping when it comes to AD and mm-hmm. specifically uh, smart cards. And yeah. so that way, you know, I could log in as a shared account and share that with other users. And I needed to be able to look at Windows logs and say like, hey, so-and-so logged in using their smart card, but they logged in as this like shared account. So that way I can map it back to them in case something happened with the shared account. And uh, the, uh, the event ID is actually uh, 4768 for anyone listening that's curious yep, about. Yep, that's a Kerberos that. event. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we, we tracked it down and, you know, it's still, it only gives you the serial number for the certificate in question, which you yes. can, you know, then relate back to the user. Um, that's not too hard. That's actually an artifact of the um, certificate policy of PIV and CAT cards versus the Microsoft default certificate policy because they use the user principal name differently than the uh, government does in its PIV specification. Oh, yeah, 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 it does. Because I ran into the issue using the... Oh, yeah, uh, you definitely have dealt with this. Yeah. Uh, users, for the for or for the listeners, say, yeah, yeah. if you use native Microsoft certificates, this doesn't end up being an issue, but it's absolutely an issue in the government space using PIV and CAT cards. Yep, yeah. Because actually, they do recommend on Windows to just disable uh, VPNs. Well, I mean, it just strikes me that they didn't adjust the way that they did things, even though they their biggest customer to, that they have to integrate with did it a different way. The defaults are ju- are still yeah as as uh, difficult to deal with as they are. So I was going to say that 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 uh, we're going to get to it. Sometimes the best way to deal with event logs is using PowerShell. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe you can capture that stuff out using Cap- PowerShell, but that only gets you the uh, certificate ID. The PIV standard is is open uh, for the listeners. Like, there's a giant number at, and then your issuer is the name that's recorded. You have to associate that with with the user. And part of the fun of getting it working in AD is that you have to take that identifier and associate that with the user ID and Active Directory in order to get certificate authentication to work. Uh, yeah, yeah. So part of the problems you had to solve was not just to get that ID out, but get that ID and associate it to a table that you're extracting from Active Directory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun, fun, fun. Oh, right. Uh, so the last thing on the statistical stuff was the way that I wrote the query is that it reruns the baseline numbers every day for the previous 30 days. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that as the numbers drift down, things are remediated, behaviors change, whatever, the baseline changes. You may have heard the word Bayesian. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
now I forget the guy's the, the guy's first name. But basically, the very important discovery in statistics was that you could take a, a statistical set of numbers that you have. If you know how much your population was, and you want to update that by a new segment of population, you can change things, but not by recalculating everything and not by you know averaging them together, mm-hmm. but saying, I have this much new population, which is one hundredth the size of the population I already have, and you can update your st- your statistical numbers by that much. Like Bayes' theorem, that's what it does. Okay. We're not doing that here because, well, we have computers and recalculating isn't that big a deal. Right. But we're using the same idea of changing our values as behavior changes. Mm-hmm. And one thing we're doing that Bayes' theorem doesn't do is we're dropping off previous days. Right. Which means that we adjust slightly faster than Bayes' theorem would because the amount of your population is going to change faster when you're dropping off old days. So as you remediate, your numbers are going to drift kind of faster as soon as you get 30 days out from a major remediation. Right. But what that means is that I don't have to mess with the baseline as often. Hopefully I don't have to mess with it at all because the fraction of one standard deviation that I'm currently using may be good enough even once we get rid of the outliers that we know have to do with artifacts on the network and are not malicious. Right, yeah. So we fix them. We just wait it out. Watch our numbers change. We don't have to mess with anything. Mm -hmm. It's just that's not only less labor, but it will let you demonstrate your numbers drifting in reports in a way that doesn't say, oh, you have to reset your expectations. Right, yeah. You can say, we're always using this formula. We know that there that there's this like lagging indicator mechanism to it, but you will see continuous numbers. Mm-hmm. All right. So you already talked a little bit about uh, 4768, which are 4768 to 4776 are pretty much all of the Kerberos events that you care about. One of the things that I see a lot that I've seen a lot in the things that I've had to deal with is there'll be services, services, applications and stuff that will attempt to do Kerberos and fail and then succeed in working through uh, SMB, in which case you'll get. Yeah, I've definitely seen this. And in fact, one of my biggest outliers right now, uh, because I can't get the admin to make any changes to, to to his SharePoint implementation but the sharepoint service id doesn't have its kerberos service configured correctly and so it's constantly trying to log in to kerberos failing and then going back to smb and that oh means, no yeah it's by far my largest outlier that's one of those <laughs> things that i actually had to exclude from the search because i can't get the uh admin to remediate because of the vagaries of politics at my customer oh jeez. I did the research. It's a known issue. <laughs> I sent him the I sent him the Microsoft tech notes and everything. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the ones that people tell you to pay attention to, and they're probably if you're going to start anywhere, this is the right place to start. Is forty six twenty four, forty six twenty five, forty six twenty four is successful logins. Forty six twenty five is unsuccessful logins in AD. If you succeed in a Kerberos login, you're going to get a forty six twenty four. If you get a hard failure in Kerberos, you'll get a 4625 in addition. Okay. But you're still monitoring behavior, the Kerberos behavior on all the 4668, uh, or sorry, 4768 to 4776. 
And then the other ones to really pay attention to, and I, I, I actually have a map of all the security relevant, a spreadsheet of all the security relevant uh, IDs that I'm, again, this is part of the whole package of stuff that I'm going to try and post. <laughs> all the 1100, like zero to like eight events are like event logger turned off. Problem with audit logging. That kind of stuff. Okay. Um, so anything in like the eleven hundred to eleven hundred to eleven ten mm. are all very security specific audit events that said somebody messed with your audit logging. Right, right, right. Yeah. If you're gonna look at nothing else, those are the ones. There's <laughs> actually the spreadsheet for all for this stuff is not small, and you have to kind of pick and choose what you want to analyze if you're doing kind of a hand analysis. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to event viewer sucks. <laughs> Event viewer will show you one event at a time. The filtering mechanisms are at least there now. They used to not be, but. Oh my God, I can't even imagine it without the filtering. Yeah. The filtering in like the just getting into NT, NT4 era mm. was not useful at all. It's basically okay for looking at events one at a time, but a lot of times what you want to do is you want to do a query and then look at the aggregate of what's going on in maybe a tabular format would be at least a better place than what, than where you're at with event viewer. Yeah. And so I went into an engagement that needed an audit because they had an insider threat kind of problem in a air gapped environment. So no external access via the network, no outgoing internet access because it's an air-gapped environment, I couldn't bring any tools in. Okay. Like, I couldn't bring any software in. And they didn't use any kind of uh, logging, of centralized logging solution. Really? Yeah. So, I did the only thing I could do. I used PowerShell. Right, right. I spent, like, a day and a half preparing for this by getting a set of uh, crib notes, a cheat sheet of how to uh, get all of the event logs that I'm looking for, how to look for weird processes, user accounts and stuff like that using PowerShell. It was a lot of work. Uh, and I, I'm, that's what, this is one of the things that I'm going to try and try and get up is, is my cheat sheet that I brought into that, into the uh, office for those three days. Mm-hmm. One thing that was a little frustrating for when event logs, you have the get, dash win event function right in powershell that's that's like the core of what you're dealing with uh in order for you to do a time bracketed search so there's an option in win in in the get win event called filter hash table where you have to make a hash they call it a hash in python you'd call it a dictionary but it's what we call an associated array json is very much like this where everything is a bunch of key value pairs or lists of or sub lists of key value pairs that kind of thing that's what you're talking about mm-hmm. um, is you have to declare the set of he- key value pairs that you're going to use as filter criteria. It's not just options. So you have to kind of build that out. One of the very important ones is start time and end time, which aren't just timestamps. They're actually time objects that you have to make PowerShell create. Really? Huh, yes. Okay. So like I have in the top of the cheat sheet, uh, string st start time equals, and then in parentheses, get date, declaring the year, month, day, hour, minute, second to get the date object mm-hmm. for start time. Now it's just string st, and I don't have to do any of that get date stuff. 
anymore for the length of time that I'm dealing with. And then I have string ET doing the same thing for whatever the, the outside of my period is. Right. So you could just say the log name, start time, string ST, end time, string ET, boom. Now you're getting everything. You could also, as one of the, the key value pairs, is you can have ID equals, and then you can have a comma delineated list of all of the IDs that you're worried about. Okay. You can So you can use that to say, okay, I want all the 4624, all the 4625 between this start time and this end time in the security log. And you would do this on the domain controller. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Because I, you can have when of, get when of event ID go to a to a system, uh, like point at a, at a remote system, or you could use it use it on the local system. I was doing it on the domain controller because one of the most important principles about dealing with Windows security is that all a domain controller is is a computer with its own SAM file, password directory, and uh, own event logs that it basically shares to the rest of the domain. Mm -hmm. There isn't a separate event log for the domain controller. It's basically everybody trying to authenticate via the domain controller is just putting it, all of those log events are just in the security log for the domain controller. Right, right. It's not separated as if it were, here's the stuff for the domain, here's the stuff for the local system. It's all together. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is very annoying. It's annoying, but you have to rem like you have to be conscious of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you run into it, like if you don't have that in your head, you be you can really confuse yourself very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another really important trick for this is you can take all that when when stuff and, and it'll output a bunch of stuff to to you if you want to be able to make it readable kind of the best thing to do is pipe to another win another powershell function called out dash grid view which makes the tabular nature of that stuff much more readable mm, okay yeah, yeah of all of all of the event objects like that to me the out grid view you can output you can you know uh write file with that so you can output it to a file mm-hmm that kind of thing, but outgrid view I, was really helpful to me. I think that there was another function that, that one of the guys there turned me on to, but didn't make it into my cheat sheet. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is crazy to me, like the the little PowerShell stuff that I've done here and there. There's a whole extra consideration of okay, I need to take this from the crazy view that it dumps out as and put it into like human readable view that like you know like if I want to export it to like a file or something, isn't just like crap on top of each other and like weird indents everywhere and stuff like that. There's a lot of really cool things about PowerShell in that it is a rough approximation to as powerful as power as Python in your shell. And it has all of the great, these great hooks into the way that windows works. And that's can be really awesome, but because it's not simplified for CLI use like bash is, it requires you to do a lot more scaffolding to get a lot done too much of the time, in my opinion. Like, this is a great example of that. The amount of effort to dump out the win event means that you have to start out by creating these date objects as if you were writing a full program, even though I'm doing this on the command line, and then creating the hash table that I'm going to use for my search criteria and then running the search. And then I have to use an output function because, you know, 
again, you think I'm programming something, but when I, but I'm just using it on the command line. Right. Right. Um, that's the downside of like this do everything language is that it means that when you're trying to do simple stuff, you have to do a lot more. And then, uh, so I also have like get process, get service, got WMI object, our process extraction stuff, uh, which I'm not going to get as much into for this particular thing. I didn't use it that much uh, because basically the dude did what he, what we expected him to do. Uh, they, they were just like, Oh, we had to walk somebody out and we're afraid that he might've messed with our stuff. Right. 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 Uh, so, yeah. let's, let, so let's run an audit. And that was what this was all about. He had admin access. So it was like better safe than sorry. We air gapped this for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't go into any more than that, but you can use get w on my object to get user accounts ad users group members local users local group stuff which uh is good for that audit stuff but might also be useful if you're trying to like extract a user table that you might use in another direction yeah yeah i, I vaguely remember using that or equivalence to that I, I basically wrote a powershell password reset tool for windows yeah that would be a thing and then there and then there's some file audit stuff the audit policy tool, you can query that and you can look at the last write times on stuff and uh, on files using get child item, which is how you usually access file listing type information. Mm -hmm. It'll do a lot of the, the stuff that you would use LS or the, or the window or not the windows, the Linux find function for. Um, yeah. So that, that was, that's basically the scope of what you absolutely need to do kind of a base hey what happened on this box with you if you can use nothing but native tools on on windows well, I, i'm going to try and post this because uh i have like my cheat sheet of the most important uh windows event log codes <laughs> in, on this sheet it, it's like three pages but man i couldn't have done that work without bringing this in without having done the re the, the research work to oh yeah, yeah 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 so uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I actually have talked to these guys at, at Black Hat and was like, hey, I would love to do an episode with you guys, but I haven't done that yet, uh, is a thing called Bloodhound. There's an open source, there's an open source tool, tool kit on this, but they have a full pay for product and consulting service around it uh, now too. So like if your organization is in the right place and it's kind of security cycle of, of of tightening things down it can be a real worthwhile uh use of of security spend hmm, okay so what it does is it dumps out a bunch of ad object information users machines permissions all over your active directory environment mm -hmm. it basically figures out the relationships uses i think i've talked a little bit about graph databases in the past yeah where you have like two objects and you have a relationship between the two of them and so it's like this user account is on this machine that has access to this thing. So they, all of those are relationships. Okay. Yeah. And it uses that to let you track, you mark something in the interface. It's uh, been owned. You say like domain admins has been owned and then it uses it stuff saying, all right, how many steps does it take to get to this? Because if somebody gets here, I've been owned. Right. Right. So that's what it's saying is like, if you get here, you've been owned. Okay. So how many steps through? So if they can step through, this user has access to this machine, which has that as domain admin rights 
So now that's your steps to domain admin because if they can get on that machine, they can probably do a credential dump from it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You start kind of going, okay, what's one step away from being pwned? What's two steps away? What's three steps away? And from the things that I've talked to them about from the presentation that they originally gave about when they originally talked about it at Black Hat, they were saying that they've been able to knock the number of paths to domain admin level credentials on most systems down by like by at least an order of magnitude, by at least a power of 10. Interesting. Okay. Because a lot of times it's not necessary. A domain admin, those domain admin paths are not necessary. Because, <laughs> um, well, let's be frank. It's a lot easier to put a user account into a highly permissive OU or group than figure out exactly what permissions are necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see that all the time. Yeah, and like, oh, we'll fix it later. Later never comes. No, no, no. Honestly, I put some of the blame for that on Microsoft because it can be very difficult to track down which permissions you actually need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The easiest way, and this is also kind of the easiest way to do it in AWS, is kind of watch what normal activity is for a while and then extract what was actually accessed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doing it after the fact like that, again, there's a timing problem. Yeah. But but figuring out the explicit permissions can be incredibly Byzantine. And if you get a little bit wrong, everybody yells at you for slowing down implementation. Yeah, yeah, it takes a lot of effort. And like you always run into the users that are just like, give me root, because like I, I need it to do all my stuff. And it's like, well, you don't, but like, you know, now we're gonna have to sit down and spend time to figure out what are you doing, what are you going to need to do? And yeah, you know, management doesn't want to hear that. Yeah, and I have been in various engagements one of the relatively few people they're like okay you're, you're asking mother way i so often we're going to give you some blanket elevated privileges and a lot of times it's local admin because i use tools nobody else uses i run stuff that nobody else runs well not nobody but it's rare that people do the stuff that i do and frankly i set off ids's all the time on some <laughs> During certain projects, doing certain things, I can really make the sock very, very annoyed at me. Right, yeah. Because, well, frankly, I'm a blue team expert. Evasion is not a thing that I prioritize, and I want to get the conclusions done quickly. I do respect not taking shit down, but... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, so Bloodhound. So it really helps you map out where the lateral movement can get dangerous for you. And it really helps you target what to remediate because to the point of, Hey, it takes, can take a lot of effort to skinny down permissions. You can tell what's the most important stuff that you need to skinny down the permissions of. Right. It gives you a really good way to prioritize that if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And maybe very helpful forensically. If you have, if you do get hit and you have that map, you can, use that to direct how you might have figured out the attack path. Yeah, yeah, true. So I, I was really impressed by that tool. I thought it was really cool. I think that graph databases will become more and more useful in, in the world of security as we get better at kind of implementing them. Yeah, that's not cool. I'm going to have to uh, use that to kind of poke around and see what I can find in my own network. I mean, I, I have this notional idea on my current major customer to try and use a graph database to figure out firewall relationships, mm-hmm. extract from the traffic, hey, these hosts go to these places and actually use 
the magic of graph theory, which frankly, I'm having a hard time kind of learning on my own, but I'll <laughs> get there to let the truths that we know about relationships come out of the graph database to do the grouping for me instead of trying to do it through the old eyeball grab yeah. um, and make it a lot more reproducible. And, and I don't think that this is the only way that that kind of thing's going to be used. If you take a look at web applications, cloud-based applications that use like a lot of microservices, sometimes it's pretty difficult. Like you can tell the service directory and what does what, but it's not so easy sometimes to say, what uses what and how often and like where your subscription stuff is and people you have methods of managing that but i think that maybe the silver bullet might be to use a similar graph database technique right yeah although that's less of the world i know so i could be just talking out of my ass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so that was kind of therapy for me because this has been a lot of what I've been dealing with at my primary engagement for the last uh, last couple of months. <laughs> so I, I, I thank you and my and, and whatever listeners uh, made it to the end here for, for <laughs> listening to me kind of brain dump and 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 get all of my angst out about uh, this kind of work. Exactly. Why pay for a therapist when you can just have a podcast? Yeah, maybe eventually it'll pay us. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.